Welcome to the Nature Reliance Podcast, where we explore the history and practical experience of the great outdoors and discover new ways to connect with nature. I'm Craig Cottle, your guide through the fascinating world of natural living and survival skills through experiential education and interviews. Today's episode is brought to you by the Nature Reliance School Online Membership, an immersive online learning experience designed for outdoor enthusiasts just like you. Are you passionate about the outdoors? Do you crave more knowledge about disaster readiness, wilderness survival, bushcraft, tracking, and nature awareness? If so, the Nature Reliance School online membership is your gateway to a community of like-minded individuals, all dedicated to learning and sharing essential outdoor skills. With the Nature Reliance School online membership, you get exclusive access to a wealth of resources, including expert-led tutorials, interactive webinars, and a library of engaging courses, downloadable books, and documents. Whether you're a beginner or an experienced outdoorsman, there's always something new to learn. So don't wait. Click on the link below to join the Nature Reliance School online membership today. Embrace the wilderness, enhance your skills, and become part of a community that values nature as much as you do. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Hi, this is Tracy. Welcome to another podcast episode from Nature Reliance Media. For all things Nature Reliance School, go to naturereliance.org. Well, it's been too long since Craig and I have taken the time to do a podcast together. So over the next three or four podcasts, he and I are going to grab headlines and news articles posted and sit down and discuss and dissect them. Let us know what you think by sending us a message to podcast at naturereliance.org. Thanks for stopping in. Hope you enjoy. Well, hello there, Mr. Tremble. How are you doing? <laughs> Man, I'm doing great. How are you? It's been a while since we've been together on the podcast. Yeah, it's been too long, isn't it? We get, we need to get our schedules worked out a little bit better so we can jump on here together. But man, has it been busy? Oh, it has been, man. Yeah. I was I did a video yesterday for some stuff, and I think it was first video I made in a week and a half. I've been making three or four a week woods walks that I do on our YouTube channel, and this one uh, I was seriously thinking, man, I've got a lot of stuff I could talk about because I've been in the woods with the different folks for. I don't know, for a while, for a while, out of state, in state and everything. Yeah, I think people like those. For those individuals listening, a lot of times at the end of class, whatever class they're taking, Craig will take the group of students, a class out for what we call a woods walk. And it's just talking about whatever we walk across. Turns out very well. I think people really, really like those. They ask questions and some of the questions are off the wall and some are, are very pinpointed. And Yeah, you know, I think it's good. A- it's a good way for people that are, particularly those that are new, but even I found even out in Utah, we did a woods walk at the end and there were a lot of very experienced outdoors people there. I was able to share some things that they had never considered. And I'm sure they could have done the same for me. Matter of fact, I know they would have done the same for me, particularly in Utah. And it's just good to hear other people that are smart and educated talk about things and and just share different skills. And that always comes up even in our classes too. I get to be the guy in front often, <laughs> but uh, there's always stuff that I learn from you and other folks. And it's just good to share and walk around and see what's going on. Yeah. I love other people's comments in those type of situations because they always bring something up. Mm-hmm. So tell us what's been going on. You mentioned Utah and 
think, yeah, I think there's another state or two that you have to mention, don't you? Yeah, tracking, tracking and more tracking, which I yeah. love teaching tracking. For those listening, Tracy and I went down to South Carolina. We taught a one-day land nav class, one-day uh, tracking introduction. And those classes are for fieldcraft survival, headquartered out of Utah, good outfit. Then got the chance right after Tracy and I got back from South Carolina to head to Utah, fly out there and do an intro to tracking for Fieldcraft out there. A lot of the staff from Fieldcraft was in the class. For those that are listening that follow Fieldcraft, I did not get to meet uh, Kevin or Mike. They were both in New Jersey training law enforcement how to shoot Kevin Owens, that is, and, and Mike Glover. But I did get to meet everybody else. Fantastic outfit. Really, really enjoyed my time out there. We did a day of filming. So if you're checking out Fieldcraft, you'll be able to see me there. Uh, you'll hear me there on a podcast with Kevin Estella. So we had a really good time doing tracking out there. I was actually very apprehensive, man, going out there because I've never been to Utah. I've never been to that part of the world. And I didn't know how the ground would react. So I was very apprehensive going out there. It sounds like the trip was very positive. Yeah, and the tracking, I thought this, this is a hypothesis of mine for years, that if you study and train and tracking here along the basically the Appalachian mountain chain and what we call mixed hardwood forest and forest leaf litter and all the things with it, I, I always thought that if you trained here and went out west, you would be okay. But if you were out there and that's where you learned how to track and then you came here, the leaf litter would really give you a, a hard time. And I feel like after being there that I was right. The tracking out there, the ground was very, very nice to me. <laughs> it was really easy to see tracks there. And and I've thought about it a lot since I got home. I don't know if that has something to do with higher elevation because we were about 4,000 feet higher than what we normally are here in Kentucky. And I got to thinking about the angle of the sun and everything as it relates to that. And that shouldn't play that big a role, or I wouldn't think it did. But, man, there was just, Tracy, man, the tracking out there was easy. Uh, the vegetation, because it was rather dry when you would step on it, it was big-time indicators of direction and, and bruising and all that stuff that goes along with it. It was just so easy to track out there, which I love for an introduction class because everybody came away really knowing something and retaining information. That's, you know, I was there not to track. I was there to teach people to track. So that worked out well. I've been out west a couple of times, but didn't really focus on any type of track or tracks, but or tracking or tracks. But I can't imagine that there's too many uh, stratas out there that's be that would be difficult than um, leaf litter here. And I don't think it, so, man. It'd just be tough. You know, one so. of one of the worst stratas that I can track in is a pine needle. Yeah, I think it's true for just about everybody. I've been in two or three different courses with other instructors and found that to be true from them as well as the students that were in class. I'll never forget. There was a tracking course I did down in North Carolina with uh, Richard Cleveland and Tom Laskowski. It was a week long class. It was really, really interesting. First day we were in forest leaf litter. Second day we were in a pine forest. And so we spent the whole day there. Both days we had to track our way out or we didn't get to go home. We had to spend the night out there. First day, we followed the instructors for about eight hours. You can imagine how long that is. They left us, and we had to find our way home by tracking them. Second day, we only had to go about, I can't remember exactly, but it was probably 100 to 200 yards through a pine needle, and it took us all day. That's a tough environment to track in. 
I think I would just kind of implement the box search and go to the edges and yeah, and kind of go from there. Yeah, they they really had that uh, what most people call that step by step. I think mm-hmm. a lot of search and rescue trackers call it step by step, or I call it micro tracking. That's how we had to do it. We had to find every single step, or we didn't get to come out. Which is so, a great way to learn. Yeah, absolutely. It's a must way to learn. Yeah, and, and I'm sure that's why they had us doing it. It was good. I did learn a lot about tracking in pine needles, but it, the big thing I learned from it is that it's pretty tough. I would do a box search, just like you just described. I'd just yeah. go around it, hit the edges, and try yeah. to jump out of it as quickly as possible. Yeah, for sure. It'd be tough, tough. What else is going on? How about locally? Tell us, tell us what Nature Line um, School's been. Uh, Man, the, locally. the good thing is, uh, for nature line school, everything's been packed. Uh, we got a class this weekend. I don't know if I told you this or not. Tracy's leading a class. Everybody's listening in this weekend. One day land navigation. Tracy, I don't know if I told you, but it's full. <laughs> everything's yeah. full. Yeah, everything's full. Uh, I've got people writing me saying I, I want in that class. And in that particular class, there is no wiggle room. We only, it's an indoor class. So we only have X amount of seats, 20. And we cannot take any more. And I got people begging to get into that class. Yeah. Um, me and you might have to find another day because <laughs> we got people wanting it. But yeah, I, I think it's a combination of a couple of things, which I, we're going to get into in this article we're discussing today. People want to get outside mm-hmm. um, due to everything that's been happening. I think people are being more focused on their self-reliance, survival, disaster readiness, whatever you want to call it, being able to take care of themselves better than relying on other people or the government or whatever. And so that's been good for nature Vermont school. Really good. Really busy. We scout tracker class here, which is always a popular class. Zane was in last night, Tracy, uh, my son. And, uh, we got to tell him about a lot of the things that happen in scout tracker classes that go on. They could go missed by a lot of people. You know what I mean? Sure. I bet and, he loved uh, it. Yeah, and we got in a big discussion of all the scout tracker classes and all the different things that have happened. That's one of the, I tell everybody it's the funnest class we teach because there's always major surprises. And I'd love to share one. You think we got time to share one about the turkey? Yeah, good. Yeah, jump on it. So we have this exercise, you all, in scout tracker where we, Tracy and I, build a campfire and then we pretend to be somebody. We hang up some chem lights around the campfire and the students task is to their mission if you will is to crawl into us get close enough without us seeing them get a chem light and then get out so tracing up our eye up there being good actors pretending to be somebody and i don't want to say because we might use them again that was pretty fun <laughs> we hear this commotion out in the woods i thought it was somebody running through the woods and it tracy tracy knew what it was i missed i totally missed it but uh, after everybody came in, this guy that was in class actually had crawled in on a turkey uh, hen with her chicks and crawled evidently right on t- right underneath of her, on top of her, whatever. She decided to flog him in the dark. <laughs> We're no, there's no lights on, just so you can get an idea. These people are crawling in in the dark. There's no lights, nothing. He gets flogged by this turkey, and other guys crawling right next to him. The chicks start climbing on top of and under him, thinking he's the hen or something i don't know it was hilarious it was hilarious i, I thought it was a <laughs> diversion whenever it first started yeah i thought someone had grabbed a hat or you know hitting against their leg or something just to create a little noise so we'd look away and someone else would would grab it which would you know would be smart but uh, i heard the hen fly off heard the, the wings yeah take off so it was that was interesting so what's coming up in the future for NRS? Well, we have 
uh, sear class, which actually filled up. We had one spot that's been sitting there for about three weeks and nobody grabbed it. Somebody took it last night. So sear class is first time we've ever done sear with the times. I felt like it was time. That's going to be a very interesting class. Yeah. And I need to get up with you on that, obviously. But, um, sear for those that are not familiar with survive, evade, resist and escape. It's a common course that's taught to people that might find themselves behind enemy lines or get caught by an enemy in the military. We're not going to take it to that level. We'll leave the military to be the specialty and to be experts at that type of training. But we are going to look at each one of those aspects for us as just average ordinary civilians, how to survive, how to evade and not be seen in the wilderness, how to resist. We're going to do some fighting, some grappling, uh, some stick fighting and knife fighting. And then we're going to look at escape, both how to utilize cover and concealment in the wilderness, and then how to set up some signals so you can be found and uh, talk about that sort of thing. So that's going to be a very good class. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. it. And it's just like everything. If people think, I think sometimes they look at me and you and think we're real well put together. And I think we are. I mean, we, I think part of the reasons we're put together is because I'm agonizing over that class right now. I put a lot of thought and effort into it. I've been thinking about this class for probably a long time, six, seven years. And I finally just, let's pull the trigger on it and let's do it. And so I'm just agonizing. I want it to be people, you know, people put a lot of time, effort, money and to come to a class and I want them to leave with information that they retain. And so I, quite frankly, as an instructor, I probably agonize maybe a little bit more than I should because things usually go really well. But I think that's part of the process of making a good class is, is working hard on it. Yeah. We usually beat a class to death, putting it all together. We got another one coming up. We've been talking about we've done it before and that's the scout tracker too it's going yeah. this far I'm, I'm really really looking forward to that one I tell you what man uh, if and this is another thing man you need to get together on i hope you got time for dinner tomorrow night after class <laughs> i meant to ask you that earlier but maybe we need some dinner if you're afterwards. talking steaks and baked potato yes <laughs> okay good yeah i'll make we'll make that happen yeah but um i'd really think we might need to put another scout tracker one on i've got people begging for that class right now Oh, really? That would be the first time ever that we've done yeah, two yeah. scout trackers in a year. But if we can figure out a time to do another one before that other scout tracker, too, uh, I don't know if we can or not. I got so much going on, but yeah, that would could, be good. If we got the, if we got a weekend, we could probably make it happen. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, Fieldcraft's got me going to Texas and Pennsylvania and possibly even to Connecticut. We'll see how all that works out, which is good. I like spreading the Fieldcraft and Nature Reliance School collaboration love around. Um, that's been, and again, Kevin Estella has been great to me on that. Kevin Estella and I have known each other for a while and, uh, we both are writers or we were both writers for, uh, Page Street Publishing. That's where I got my first three books and he got his book published. So, um, he's a good dude. He's doing good things out there at Fieldcraft, I think. We'll be back after a quick break. Hey guys and gals, a quick break in our episode to talk about a game changer in outdoor cooking, the Fire Maple Backpacking and Camping Stove System. Whether you're hiking, fishing, or even prepping for emergencies, this portable pot and jet burner is a must-have in your gear. Best part, it's nearly half the price of a comparable jet boil stove system. Thanks to its leading heat exchange technology, you'll experience reduced boiling times by up to 30% compared to traditional stoves, even in windy conditions. That means more time enjoying the outdoors and less time cooking. 
Are you ready to upgrade your outdoor cooking game? Click the link in the description now to grab yours. Trust me, your outdoor adventures will never be the same. Sounds like it. I follow and watch all the videos they post up. If you don't watch or follow Fieldcraft, it's, in my opinion, good to, good to follow. It's a good uh, good medium to Yeah, follow. shout out to my friends Nick and Austin out there. Austin and has been with Fieldcraft for a while, and Nick, when I went out to Utah, I just started with them, and I guess he might be a contractor for them or something. I'm not sure, but they're the guys behind the videography and the photography. And, man, and they're both outdoorsmen which makes it really good. So uh, Austin worked at the United States Air Force SEER school for a while. Solid dude. Absolutely, positively fell in love with tracking. I mean, he's a freak about it now. I mean, he emails me or messages me about once or twice a week ever since I got home. So, nice. hey, man, I found this. What do you think? Am I right? Am I am, am I making my interpretations right? <laughs> and all this stuff. So and they're, they're good guys. They They really do make good video work for sure. Yeah, they do. And good topic. They got a podcast. Um, Kevin Estella, yeah. I think, operates majority of that. Yeah, Mike does. Mike Glover uh, does mm-hmm. a lot of the podcasts with the guys that he served with, mm-hmm. and then the others. Uh, Kevin brings in, and Kevin. Kevin's a great communicator. Kevin was a high school teacher, and so he knows how to communicate. We actually had a real long discussion while we were out there about teaching and communicating, and because I asked him because he's a teacher, and I said, "Hey, man, I really like for you to critique my teaching." methods and so we had a discussion afterwards and he's like dude i don't know how you learn the stuff that you do but it's just by the book what they teach you to do and teaching other people that was rewarding to hear another somebody that spends a lot of time learning how to teach people because i think me and you've put a lot of effort into that to hear him backing us up on it so that was good and he and so because of that and i got off on a tangent but because that he's a good communicator and he's a good communicator on a podcast that's for sure yeah, he does a good job. Well, anything else before we jump into this article? Man, we could talk about nature line school classes forever. forever so let's yeah, move on. Absolutely. So what happens is Craig will come across the article. I'll come across the article and we usually send it to each other and either make some comments or ask what the other ones think about. And I think this is one that you came across and sent over to me. If I remember yeah. right, we've, we've got two or three that we're going to be working through, but here's the headline of it. It says, Average American thinks they could survive two weeks in the wild despite lack of experience. That type of headline article will get your attention if you're, if you teach the outdoors. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. So my first thought that went through my head was no, no, that's a big, no, (laughs) that's a big, no, there's no way, man. I don't think so. I don't don't either. You know, again, if we could look at it, survive maybe they might be alive maybe yeah uh, but that that's even that's a questionable uh thought on it but at, whether they come out just traumatized or not is another thing I, I think your typical person at the very least would come out of a, an experience of two weeks traumatized they'd be shell-shocked wouldn't they yeah big time big yeah. time first of all what are they defining as the wild yeah i think that was the first thing that came up to my mind what we'll do guys and gals listening in is we'll just go down through this article and pull out some statements and tracy and i want to share what we think about it i looked hard they did not link and this is a fox news story which is very unfortunate that they did not link to the actual survey because that's as a guy who loves statistics because there's some statistics in this article i always want to see the study 
because journalists are really bad about pulling out. Well, first off, statistics nerds, those that put numbers together are usually putting the statistics together to say what it is that the people that are funding them want them to say, (laughs) unless they're scientists in a lab. If you don't believe that, then I can tell you right now that's a fact because I I studied statistics at UK, University of Kentucky, and one of the last classes I had, it was actually the last semester there, was how to make statistics look and sound and appear the way you want them to. It had nothing to do with the statistics. It was some sometimes when you present them, you present them in graph form because this this type of graph, whether it's a pie graph or a bar graph or line graph, will educate the people the way you want them to be educated and put information in their head the way you want them to be, the way you want them to think. It's how you use statistics, which you would think would be hard information, but actually turn it into something soft so that you can force people to think you the way you want them to. I couldn't find this study. I couldn't find this research anywhere because I know the statistical gathering did some of that, I'm sure. And then this journalist took the liberties to do more of it to to make the article sound the way they wanted to, which I thought, you tell me, Tracy, I felt like the journalist here made it out to be that this is probably true. Oh, I felt, yeah, I felt like for sure he thought that this would be the way life would be for these people. And I don't think so no, at all. No, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So let's jump into the article and let me, give me just a second. I'll pull it yeah. up here. Yeah. We'll link to the article, everybody in the podcast notes. So, you have access to it as well. Yeah. So again, the article says average American thinks they could survive two weeks in the wild despite lack of experience. And it's, the article starts out, people might not be as prepared for the great outdoors as they think they are. Based on a recent survey, many, many Americans feel confident that they could survive the wilderness for more than a week. Unfortunately, when it came down to specifics, well, those specifics always trip you up, <laughs> don't they? <laughs> many respondents seem less prepared than they assumed well let me jump on there real quick before we move forward they had a hyperlink to wilderness there because i was interested to see what they said is wilderness and again the comment that tracy just said was they feel confident they could survive in the wilderness so i hit that link for wilderness to see where that took and it basically took uh, the reader to a listing of national parks which i would think your typical person that doesn't go outdoors they probably do do go to a park in some sort of spark. And that's something I learned a lot when I was in Utah about how much BLM land there is out there in the world. Golly, there's a lot of acres out there that belongs to the federal government. But there's just a world of people that go into BLM land out west that is not a park at all. I mean, it's just wild land. Anybody yeah. can go on it because it's, you know, if you're a free American, then you can go on it and you can overland, you can camp, you can hunt, you can fish and whatever. But it's not a park. There's no picnic tables and fire rings or anything for anybody out there. Does that area have rangers? They've got search and rescue people. Mm -hmm. They got search and rescue people if something goes wrong. And that's pretty much it. I mean, obviously, there's law enforcement for every area. But there's just so much. Man, there's just millions and millions of acres. So, yeah, it's critical. It is. To understand that. So the article says, unfortunately, when it comes down to specifics, many respondents seem less prepared than they assumed. It says, regardless, I think this was a statement or a good good portion of the article to read. It says, regardless, the survey also suggests that the last year has given Americans a greater appreciation for the outdoors. No doubt. No doubt. I'm getting that a lot. Nature Blind School has been small enough that, small such that, maybe I should say, then when work comes our way, we have to consider it. 
and we just find time on the calendar. And this year is the first time where I've just literally had to tell organizations, no, I don't have the time to do that at all. Uh, and I think that's an in- indicator for us locally that that's what's happening here in central Kentucky. But if Fieldcraft is any indicator, Fieldcraft's doing classes all over the country and they're full too. I mean, they're, they're usually maxing their classes out as well. So the pandemic kind of pushed people out to, I guess, less crowds, which pushed them onto parks and the outdoors. And once they got out there, they kind of realized that, Hey, it's not as crowded. It's not as noisy. It's relaxing. I've, I've kind of refresh my batteries out here i think that but originally and the article alludes to this somewhere i think originally a lot of people thought that that was a safe place to go and they didn't have to wear a mask and then once they got there they realized the benefits of it yeah yeah they've enjoyed themselves because people could get out get away from everybody spend some time in the wilderness nobody wants to wear a mask i mean i don't know who would want to wear a mask i mean i understand that some people wear a mask because they feel that it's makes them safer and makes the community at large safer, but nobody wants to wear one that sucks. And so people were getting outside so they could get away from that thing. The article continues says, according to a recent survey, the average American believes they can survive 16 days in the wilderness. When pressed on specific skills, however, it seems that they may be lacking some important skills. So 16 days. Negatives in the negative. That's a negative ghost rider. There's no way in the world, man, (laughs) that is not going to happen. Um, we, there's a, there's a real good study and there's a book. And I, as far as I know, I think you can only get it on audible called the three day effect. There was a really good study done where it was determined that at three days, if you've never spent much time in the outdoors, When you get to three days, there's an actual physiological change in your body, particularly in the neural pathways of your brain, when you spend three days in nature. That has been shown, not just in that book, because that author writes, or she reads her own book. She reads her her own text about the study and alludes to a bunch of other studies that prove it too. We've got a link. I'll find this too. I'm going to take a note so I don't forget. But we have a blog piece on our website that's got a listing of, I don't know, there's probably 75 different links on there that prove that nature is good. But what the three-day effect also determined is that people that are new, if three days is optimal, great things happen to your body, to your mindset, to your physical development. But around day four or five, you start to degrade again. You start to go the other way if you're not used to it. And so somewhere around day or four or five, people start having really problematic thoughts. Their body changes enough that their diet's probably completely changed because they're not eating the same food they did. And your body really gets in habits of what it's eating. Like yesterday, was was it yesterday or day before yesterday, I was teaching a bunch of JROTC kids and we ate MREs and I ate MRE with them just because that's what they gave me. I hadn't eaten an MRE in a while, man. And my my belly's been jacked up ever since. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's just where I was introduced to food that I'm not normally eating. I noticed a couple of the master sergeants that were there did not partake in the MREs. <laughs> they, they'd eaten enough in Iraq and Afghanistan that they weren't eating anymore. It was, I, I just want to hang out with the kids, but, but it, that's true for everybody. Your gut really starts to not like what's going on, particularly as it relates to starvation or lack of food in a survival situation. Finding food is difficult. 
So around that 16 days is where you're really going to start to feel the debilitating effects of not eating much at all. If you haven't found water, you're so shrunk up and not able to function as a human at 16 days. Yeah, there's no way, man. There's no way. No. So, well, let me ask you this, trying to think here. If we, um, if we're sitting in, in a Walmart parking lot or we're sitting in a box store and we randomly pick someone that's walking by, take them to the middle of woods here in Kentucky that you and I are familiar with. We plot them down and walk away. What do you think's going through their mind first? Yeah. And that's why I brought it up. Food's going to go through there. And the same thing, I'll ask the kids pretty much the same question yesterday in that JROTC, you know, I put them in a scenario where they had to survive. What are their needs? And the first thing that came out of their mouth is food. And it doesn't matter who I ask. That's what people say. They never think about core body temperature maintenance. They don't think about water at all. It it actually surprises me that people don't consider water. Uh, it may be just because we're so, you know, so easy to get water here and, and fluids that we just don't think about the impact that it has on our body and how quickly it would have an impact, not just on our physical body functioning, but also our mental thought process. And yeah, we see it all the no time idea. in search and rescue people who get dehydrated. Man, they, they make some dingbat decisions out there. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a major issue that just gets overlooked. Quickly, yeah. The other thing is you said the three-day effect would be the lack of um, conversation with people. I've been there with that. Being alone is very different. And even if you're an introvert and you don't like being around people, I've got people that are close to me that are like that. Still, that human interaction brings something to it that if you've never experienced that is difficult. And I think that would be even worse now where we're so tied into social media. Yeah, I do too. I think that the, um, you know, I'm, I'm one like that. I mean, I love my privacy and there's some days that the only people I talk to is really my family that lives here in the house, but you start doing two days, three days, four days of that. And that is going to wear on you. Now, I would like to think that I'm mentally, I could mentally work through that, but you never know until you go through it. No. The other thing is think of the people who can't go a half day without talking to someone. Right. Right. They have to talk to someone and you put those type people in that situation. They will go nuts much quicker than three days. I think. Oh, there's no doubt. It would wear on them quick. (laughs) I think about my daughter. Uh, I don't think Lily can go 15 minutes without talking to somebody. <laughs> I got a sister like that. I tell people all the time that <laughs> your sister. <laughs> yes. I mean, if, if she was out in the woods, she'd be talking to a tree, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. we would go horse riding all the time and there'd be a camp. And whenever we left camp after four or five days, she would stop at every camp and say goodbye to them because she had been around camp and talked to everyone. Well, you take someone like that and put them out there where they could not talk, especially, you know, you jerk their electronics away. I'm assuming right. that's what we're talking about here. It would be tough on her. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You want to look uh, at some of these specifics here? Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll continue on here. But whenever you said the three-day effect, I wrote that down. So I'm going well, to look one, that man. up. Uh, it says, according to survey, only about 17% of the respondents were, and get this, very confident, not just confident, but very confident that they could start a fire with a flint. That statement right there tells me everything about the journalist and about the people. If that's the way the question was worded, and let's emphasize 
start a fire with a flint. First off, flint only exists in a small part of the world. There's none of that, none of that in the United States of America unless it was brought here. All we have here is chert, and I know that's kind of picky and whatever, but that's true. Secondly, you can't make fire with flint. You've got to have flint and steel. And a lot of people, and a lot of people that even that I see in the community of survivalist and preparedness people and stuff of that nature, they call a ferrocerium rod flint because they just don't understand it. It's something that sparks. And so it's the same thing as flint and steel, and it's not. Starting a fire with a flint, I mean, heck, I know I'm a survival guy, but if I have to start a fire with a flint, what I'm using is I'm making that into a knife so I can build a hand, hand drill set or a bow drill set. Yeah, that <laughs> because was, a flint that, doesn't do anything by itself. <laughs> Nothing. Whenever I read that little paragraph there, that's what went through my head. Are we giving these people anything or, right? you know, do they have at least a knife? Do they have, can they pack their backpacking gear and take with them? That would be a game changer. Craig, there's no way. There's no way that you could pluck people out of a parking lot and, and put them with just their clothes or even just what they have in their pockets nope. out there that they're going to survive reasonably for 16 days out there. No. Hey, NRS secret, everybody. One of the things I ask students when we first start in an intro class to survival is what do you have on your body right now that you could utilize for survival? And people start naming stuff off like shoestrings and I have a watch or I have this or I have that. And then I always ask this question, how would you use it? How would you yeah. use those shoestrings? How would you use that watch? And, and they go blank. Yeah. They just give me that deer in the headlight stare and they know that they could probably use it. And they think that they would rise to the occasion. But as I've said a hundred million times, thanks to Jeff Cooper, people do not rise to the occasion. They default to their level of training. Actually, it was a Greek philosopher that first said that, but Cooper built upon it. But it was, it, that's the way people think. They think mm -hmm. they're going to be able to just come up with some miraculous way that they're going to use those shoestrings to make a boulder fire, even though they've never done that in their world. Never done that. Yeah, and they, so watched, they watched it on TV. Isn't that the truth? So that they, they know that they can do it. Tell you what, I would hate to have to take my shoestrings out and make a boulder, you know, boulder no. fire if my life depended on it. I've done it many a times, but I've never had to do it with my life depending on it. See, that's no. a big that's a big obstacle to cross over. Well, and, and I, I think, think people see that. I think it's worthy of discussion that you bring that up. I think you would be fine, right? Because you've trained how to, how to focus your attention when you need to, you know, the difference between, okay, this is a real situation. Here's how I get focused. You've been there, done that. Your average person's never been there, done that. They don't do that. They don't know how to under stress, focus their energy and their, their, uh, even the resources. So I just don't think there's any way, man. And, and I'm looking at this number. It says very confident, 70%, you know, as well as I do, the question was something along the lines. Cause you start a fire with Flint, very confident, confident, neutral, no way. There's absolutely no way. We're the five opportunities for them to answer. And 17% said confident. I wonder how many people were confident that they could. Yeah. I'd say it's a large number. Uh, from a statistical standpoint. Yeah. And this is, and, and just to give you an idea, everybody, one of the things that we studied in statistics, if you offer a, a five answer question or five answers to a question, let's say it's 
very confident, confident, neutral, not very confident, and certain that you couldn't. Let's say those are the five answers. The largest majority of the people, whether they believe their answer or not, are going to answer the second one from the top that they think is the positive answer. People look at the question and look at the what they think is the positive side of that. In this case, being confident in my mind is probably what it was. There's probably a good 40% of the people that have said confident. I can, I can guess probably within 5% of how many people answered that way. That's just human nature. Yeah, I would agree with that. That would be interesting to see the full survey and that they put out there and the questions yeah. and answers that they put out. <laughs> Listen to this uh, <laughs> next paragraph. It says only 14% were as confident that they could identify edible plants. There goes your food. 14% were as confident that they could identify edible plants and berries. Further, only 35% were able to correctly identify poison ivy. Now, you know good and well, I don't know how the, again, don't know how the survey went. If they showed them pictures and they said, which one's poison ivy, you know that a good percentage of that 35% guessed. Yeah. You got it right. 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 So that 35% is probably, oh, 15%. Yeah. If you put a poison ivy leaf up against a box elder leaf, mm -hmm. it would be split right down the middle because they're leaves of three. They both have lobes on them and then people would not be able to see the difference in the two. I mean, it's just what they just wouldn't see yeah. it. I'm just telling you. Man, well, we take no people at all time right now in uh, poison ivy uh, versus Virginia creeper leaves of three yeah. and leaves of five really. And Anything that has a vine to it is poison ivy. Yep. I mean, which is a good error, I guess. Right. Right. Yeah. Gonna error, error, yeah. Error on that way. But I don't I believe that 35%. Class in Utah. I taught a scout tracker class. Well, me and you taught a uh, scout tracker class. And then I taught those JROTC kids. And I taught the university kids. All four of those classes, there were people that confused. Virginia creeper with poison ivy, all four of them. And, and it's true across the board, man. It, it doesn't matter. There's people that think that Virginia creeper is poison ivy or poison ivy is Virginia creeper, which is unfortunate. It is. It is. But the one that, um, the, the 14% was also something, uh, 14% mm. felt very confident they could identify edible plants and berries. No, they probably can in a supermarket, right? Well, they can look at a blackberry and, See this blackberry in part because it's labeled blackberry. <laughs> right. Right. Um, I think that, I think that if someone who hasn't studied plants and you plucked them down and they started eating, whatever they come across would be troublesome really quick. Yeah. The, the, unless you know what you're looking for, uh, there's just a lot of things that are better out there. Mm -hmm. And particularly for Americans, Americans are taught that we don't like better food. And so we avoid it. And so there's so many things that are actually you, you could eat that you would taste and you just like, Ooh, that's bitter. That must be bad. Well, it's not. There's very few things out there that you eat and go, Oh, wow, that's mild. Or that's actually tasty. There are very few things out there that are edible plants. From my perspective, I have a different perspective than many that study this topic, but I think it's by design. I think we're intended to eat more bitter foods. And so that's why there's more out there. <laughs> Quite frankly, that's how I feel about it. Right. But, um, it's one of those things that there's, I don't believe 14% would be very confident. And it says they were as 
only 14% were as confident, as confident, which lends itself that they were on the same level as the previous statistic from my perspective. That's the way I'm that's, reading that. That's the way I read it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's probably another 30 or 40% there that said they were actually confident they could do that, which means that there's somewhere around 50% of the people said that they were confident or very confident that they could do that. And that's not my experience teaching people. <laughs> it's just not my experience at all. Mine either. It's not my experience trying to learn edible plants. No, it, it takes a lot of energy and focus to learn edible plant and what you can and can't eat. Oh, when I went to Utah, that was one of the first things I wanted to do because I was in such a different environment looking at different things. And so fortunately, Kevin Estella, uh, I stayed with him. I stayed at his place. That's and they were his he and his wife were incredible hosts for me while I was there. But uh, he had a book laying out the edible plants of Utah that I looked through. And sure, there's a couple there that are similar to here in Kentucky, but there's just a whole world that's not. One thing that I think most of our listeners would like, different from Kentucky, the edible plants here on in this part of the world, that's a really thick book. The edible plants in Utah, very, very thin. Imagine so. Yeah, there's just not a lot of diversity. Like the question, one comment that came up out there when I was out there, I thought was interesting as it relates to edible plants and what have you was when people were asking where I was from, because obviously I have a, a certain way that I speak that was different than the way he speak in Utah. They, I would tell them Kentucky and they were like, oh, and almost every time they say, oh, it's really lush there, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah, it is. It is very lush here compared to where we were there. It sure. was, it's incredibly lush here, which lush is another way of saying it's very diverse here, in my opinion very diverse compared to what I saw out there here in Kentucky, for that matter, in this part of the physiographic region of the Cumberland Plateau and inner bluegrass, for that matter, for us here in Kentucky, there's so much different stuff that we can eat. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Let's get, let's continue on with the yeah. the article here. It says the survey also showed that the last year apparently gave many Americans a newfound appreciation for nature. I think that is a good thing that came out of last year majority responded that they felt that nature activities were the safest way of getting out of the house during the pandemic and ensuring uh, and ensuing lockdowns. Uh, this sentiment apparently gave about two thirds of the responder respondents a greater appreciation for nature. They also felt more responsibility. That's good for taking mm -hmm. care of nature and right. were more willing to partake in sustainable actions. I actually think that's a good byproduct of what's happened. Yeah, um, it, it seems like that people s see the value of having that out there, whether they had taken advantage of it up to that point in their life or not. Now they have. And so they see even more so that having that there for them and everybody else, whenever we might want to utilize it is incredibly important. So it's good. I think that's, you know, if there's anything good that can come out of what's happened, then I think that is something that's come out of it. it's really good. Yeah, I do too. Whenever you start taking, I use the word freedoms away, can't do this, can't do that. Right. And then you can get out in nature. Uh, I think that really opened some people's eyes to not take for granted. Right. It says some of the actions that uh, respondents said they take included recycling, picking up litter, conserving water and compostings. Others said they would donate to nature charities and others even said they would plant trees. That's a good one and participate mm -hmm. in beach cleanups. That's a good one as well. Based on recent report, it appears that hunting also 
saw an increase in popularity as well. The article said that Arkansas hunters recently set a new record in the 2019-2020 season, bringing in more deer than any year since 1938. That's pretty phenomenal, actually. That is phenomenal. Yeah, that's, uh, and there's a data right underneath there that New York hunters bagged more bears, or more bear, I think, is it bears or bear? Bear. Bear. Bear in 2020. That's really good that people are starting to take ownership in their own food sources, whether it's these edible plants and they're at least considering them or their own protein sources through hunting. Hunting is dying as a, a method. It, it, you would think that the next generation of all those who hunted like that are mine and your age now would have been training their kids to hunt, but that's not happening at all. I think my son, even for example, I think he hunts because he likes to spend time with me, but I don't think he hunts because he likes to do it. And that's just something that's just different for that generation. But I can see now even talking to him last night, he's now a little bit more on his own. Than he ever has been and taking care of his own thing. And he's, he's wanting to do more hunting. Now you would think with a population increase, like we've had, there would be more hunters, but it's actually declining. Fishing is increasing exponentially. People are really getting into kayaking and stand-up paddleboarding and stuff of that nature and taking advantage of that and utilizing it for fishing too. But your typical person doesn't hunt anymore. It's not easy. It's, you know, it's a hobby, if you will, for some people that's expensive. You know, you'll probably put about two grand into a firearm or a bow or camouflage. And if you get a lease on a farm, you're going to spend a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. to go hunting it's just something that's unfortunate but it's good to see that that number's increasing there in arkansas our yeah. numbers were lower here in kentucky for deer and they were a lot lower this year for turkey than they have been in the last three years so that's another thing that went down but they're studying why that's happening right now they don't think it's a number uh, it's not an issue with users it's just a number of the available uh, well, game multi multi-variable i guess you should say it'd be interesting to see what they say I think a lot of people miss the aspect of hunting, especially if you're not a hunting a hunter, is that it plays a pivotal role in the the game control numbers wise and the health of the overall deer population and turkey population and, and everything. I think people yeah. miss that. Yeah, that's that is something that's hard for people to grasp that by killing animals you help the population grow. The, there's a lot to that. It's a multivariable look at statistics, that's for sure. But the long and the short of it is that you want a, a larger and healthier population. And the way you do that is you control how many are out there of different sexes because that then limits the number of, let's say, deer, for example, because they, they, there's a lot of research on deer and turkey, for example. When you limit the numbers, then the wildlife The vegetation that's available for wildlife is more prominent, which means other species of wildlife can gain from that. And so it's all an incredible process of being able to do that properly. A lot of information goes into studying that. A lot of information, a lot of years of statistics and everything that they they pull in and play into that. Hey, I was teaching that group. I hadn't told you much about teaching that group of university students. And these were students from all over the country that, we're studying very top, various topics like that. There were three or four. I'm a wildlife uh, habitat nut, so I'm always talking to people 
about that topic. The, the overseeing professor over the program was a wildlife guy and his undergrad degree was in statistics. So, oh, wow. you know, we struck up a friendship real quick and I was asking him, well, I was basically telling him that, that it was obviously my fault and maybe somewhat my counselor in high school. I didn't know that you go into the fields of like wildlife biology and stuff like that, or I probably would have, I, I just didn't know that that was a thing. Unfortunately, I didn't do my own homework on what kind of things were out there. He's like, man, I've made a career doing wildlife study using my statistics. And there's just very few people that like statistics. And so I've been uh, very fortunate. He is saying that he had been very fortunate to be able to do that. And a lot of people just can't do that because they don't understand. They don't understand stats, but it's critical. Yeah, it's like critical. A, like you find in a long lost brother, wasn't it? Yeah, he was he was a really kindred spirit for sure. Yeah. Uh he'd been in the university setting for a long time and he was uh yeah, he was he was a good guy, real good guy. David Brown, I think is his name. Over yeah. at Eastern Kentucky University. Really good Interesting. guy. Interesting. Interesting. Sum up the article for us. What do you think? We're at the end of it. Yeah. Uh I think as a summation, I think it's good that people are getting outside and respecting and, and appreciating nature. And, and to look at the negative side of it, unfortunately, I think people are under a false sense of security if they think they can last two weeks. I mean, I do this for a living, you all, and spending 16 days out in the wilderness without knowing where I was and not having adequate supplies, I don't like the thought of doing that at all. There's no part of me that likes the idea of doing that, and I do that kind of thing for a living. <laughs> I mean, yeah. there's no yeah. way, man. Well, for those that may not know, new listeners here, Craig spent two 30-day, what would you call them, treks into the yeah. into the woods of Kentucky with just a knife, one in the summer or spring, I guess, and then one in the wintertime, and had, had some interesting comments to make about those. But let me ask you this question, because I, I hear this often. Actually, I think one of the comments, I looked down, I know you did too, read some of the comments that people posted on the article. We are throw a couple right. out there. Yeah. But- Let's say that someone read this article and they say, well, Craig, I, I can just go out and sit down for two weeks. No, you can't. You'd go crazy for one. When you start playing games in your head about what's going on, you start hearing things that are not there that you think that are there. You start seeing things that are there that are not there. And when that happens, you start to move. And when you start to move, then you set yourself up for injury and problems and not being found again. And so dehydration is going to get you really quick. If you, especially if you go into the woods not hydrated and 80% of Americans are dehydrated right now, as you listen to this, 80% of you all listening are dehydrated. You can imagine 80% of the people that walk in the wilderness are dehydrated. And then now they're out there. There's no way, man. I mean, you would, you would turn into a non-functioning human, meaning you probably couldn't walk after two days of that. You would literally start to shrivel up like a raisin. Your muscles would start to contract your arms and hands and feet wouldn't work anymore. Your legs would be, your legs would be solid rocks and you wouldn't be able to function. And that could happen. It, it, again, if you go in dehydrated, that could happen in two to three days, four to five days at the longest. There's no way you could just sit there and do nothing. Sit no there way. And do nothing. Whenever you said that you pluck someone down and set them, and I'm, I'm going to refer to the woods of Kentucky because that's what I'm familiar with. And I would probably be the same way. You set me down in grizzly bear territory. My mind would work on me, right? Every yeah. twig that break would be a grizzly coming at me type deal. We had a gentleman, uh, he and his girlfriend, we went in uh, for search and rescue and got them. They called and 
they knew knew where they were roughly, and we did get a coordinate. We went in and, and got them, and and as we was walking to them, their headlights shined on them, and this guy was huge. He mm. made me look like a sixth grader, not not huge. I mean, like a bodybuilder type deal, about six oh, okay. three, six four, and you know he had the tank top on, <laughs> muscles everywhere, and right. he was standing there with the. Um, his Glock in hand. Oh, in really? Not. Yeah, absolutely. Oh man. Yeah. I said, I knew his name. I'm going to use his name, but, uh, uh, we'll call him Tom. Tom, you okay? We're searching rescue. Would you care to put that gun away? He said, yeah, man. And he's real nice about it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care, man. I just, I just afraid something would come up on us. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's bad, man. Yeah. That's so, dangerous. so I think about his mental outlook being here in Kentucky. Sure. Sure. And then I'm thinking about, well, what would my mental status be if you pluck me down, say, in Yellowstone, where I know that, you know, there's grizzlies out there? Hey, listen to this, man. When I went to Utah, there, there was one day we got done filming, and I had about a two- or three-hour break. Kevin Estelle had been a great host, and he's like, man, if you want to go do something on your own, go ahead. And I did. I just drove up the road about three miles and went to a little state park that was literally right off the road. There was a place where he goes trout fishing all the time. He said, there's a nice trail there. And and so I wanted to go down there and see if I could see some bald eagles and whatnot. And I got walking down through there. And this is one of those places, man. And and for those that are out West that are listening and those that have been there, you know what I mean? You look over there and you think, man, it's not very far. When actually over there is a mile away, you know, you can see so far away, if not two miles or three. So I start walking down this trail and it's just scrub brush and it doesn't look like it's much higher than your waist, but when you get in and then there's a lot of it that's head high come running right at me is a mule deer. I mean, running right at me comes running within 10 yards of me, which is pretty cool. And I'm like, wow, that's really cool. And then it hits me. What's making that thing run towards me. <laughs> and there's mountain lines there. I'd seen a mountain line track the first day I was there. And I literally, this is, this is, this is Craig Cottle. Okay. I literally turned around and went back to the truck. Cause I was by myself. I was out of my element and I admitted that to myself instead of just continuing on. I thought, you know, I'll probably, you know, I didn't do the whole thing. Like mo- I'll be okay. There's no mountain lines out here. Well, no, I know there's mountain lines out there. I'd already seen the tracks. Right. And so I just went back to the truck thinking nobody, re- I told Kevin where I was going in general, but nobody really knew where I was. There I am with something, something caused that mule deer to run at me. It wasn't me. I mean, it would run away from me. That's, yeah, that's me, Craig Cottle, super survivalist or whatever. I'm going back to the truck. <laughs> that situation. If, yeah. And if it was in the hills of Kentucky, you would slide behind a tree and hope you see what was making sure. it run, which yeah. may be a bobcat or something like that. Right. So, right. Yeah. But not out there, man. Yeah. You know, not out there. It's a different world. What do you want to do? You want to read a couple comments yeah, let's here take real a look quick? At these we'll, just we'll, funny. We'll <laughs> No, how how long have we been on here, man? I've been here for a while. We'll, we'll close it out here in just a couple of comments. Or hey, something. these this guy brought something up um, real well. It's actually the comment on the top is after the recent freeze here in South Texas, when I personally had to rescue many neighbors and friends from disastrous water pipe damage and freeze ups due to extended power outages. I'm convinced the average American couldn't survive three days of Costco closures. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, if you saw the new anybody that 
paid attention to the news when all that stuff happened in Texas. He's right. He's people 100% couldn't even, right. Yeah. People just, I mean, people's uh, toilets were freezing and bursting because they just didn't have any backup heat source. Mm-hmm. I've said that for years. I mean, you know how many times I've said this, that, you know, when snow happens here in Kentucky, people go out and buy uh, nutter butters, bread, milk, and beer. I mean, they're going to go get those things because they feel like they're necessities when they should be just verifying they have a backup heat source. If you were in Texas and you knew that this was coming and they did, they, I mean, it came on quick, but they knew it was coming and you're not out and doing something to have a backup heat source or you don't already have a backup heat source. Then you're, yeah, you're, you're going to have that kind of stuff happen. I think the, the Texas deal in a freeze, you know, if you live in your life, I don't care if it's daily life or if you're on a day hike and you're, mental thought is ah, it won't happen it is a bit wrong and you know yeah. you're setting yourself up for for something there that's that's going to come back and bite you here's a guy that said hey i've been a hunter and outdoorsman for most of my life but i wouldn't want to put myself to that test that's somebody that's in control he, of their ego right there. he understands that yeah. person understands let's see what else we have here dude here's a good one that's funny years ago a young lady i worked with was tasked with writing a paper for college class detailing and what she would do in the event of a disaster apocalypse type event where our classmates studying and wrote about things they had less than no clue how to do. My friend wrote that she'd shack up with me. She acknowledged that she lacked any outdoor skills, but knew that I hunted and fished, grew a large garden, would clean and cook. She would clean and cook all of it. She knew I'd take care of her and we'd get along fine. She got the highest grade in class with the only realistic plan. How many times, Tracy, have you heard, hey, if something goes down, Tracy, I'm coming to your house? A few times, yeah. Yeah, same here. And, uh, during, uh, an event this past year, that's, that happened to me where I had some people that are close to me, living close to me actually came to me for supplies. There was, yeah, that, that's a bad situation. That's I, hope, an, I hope they have changed their thought process. Yeah. And I, and I actually was able to help them at that time. And then I, I made the agreement with the person that was borrowing some things from me. Listen, I'm gonna let you borrow these things. Cause I've got extra. But here's what you've got to do. After this is over, me and you're going to sit down and we're going to talk about how to fix you and your family. Right. And you're welcome to use them if you agree to that. And if you don't agree to that, then you can't take them. Yeah. You know, I put him on the spot and made him, forced him, right? And he did. I mean, we sat down and talked about supplies and preparedness, and he took care of himself because I don't want to do that again. I want him to be able to do it this next time. You start having people knock on your door in a bad situation. I mean, you're not good. You know, that's a, that's a tough, that, that is a tough position to be in because you want to protect your family. You want to help your family for sure. You've done what you uh, have done over the years, months, weeks leading up to it. Those things that you have done can be depleted really quick by helping, yeah. helping others. And, um, yeah, the beauty of it for me in that particular situation was that, that, uh, my kids are out of the nest now. Mm-hmm. And so when they got out of the nest, I took care of them. And so they've got back up to their backup. Well, they've got the, what they use and then they got back up and then they got back up to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they're okay. But even then, because I'm a survival instructor, I've got a lot of extra stuff. Sure. And so, uh, and I keep a lot of it that I don't need and probably should give it away or sell it for situations like that. Mm-hmm. But there's also, there was also something else they wanted. I would not give them and I had extra, but at that point in time, it was me and my wife and I was taking care of her, you know, 
that's why I think right now you all, if you're listening, you need to get your stuff together so that you feel comfortable and, and help your neighbors out. That's what I've said for years. It's one of the reasons Nature Law School got started is because I could see some of these things that were coming that we are now witnessing and seeing and, and experiencing. And I wanted to train as many people as I possibly could on preparedness so that when I turned people away, I did not feel guilty about it. And at this point, I've trained thousands and thousands of people in disaster readiness and survival. Tracy can say the same thing. And I don't have to feel guilty anymore because I've, yeah. I've done my part. Yeah, absolutely. I agree, man. Hey, one last one, then we'll, we'll go ahead yeah. and close this out. The comment says, I could survive for two weeks. I would be brought back to civilization, a shell of myself, covered in bug bites, starving, and likely suffering from some waterborne illness. Three weeks, I may just be dead. That's pretty true. Yeah, I think that is. You know, Two weeks versus three weeks. Boy, that extra week would be tough. I, I can attest to that from personal experience yeah, that, know, that third week's good. a killer. Yeah. Especially the fourth. Well, good deal. I hope everybody has enjoyed this. I think we're going to try to do this a little more often. Yeah. Do us, give us some feedback. You all and do us a solid, give us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast, give us some stars there, you know, give us five stars. Obviously we would love that. Give us a uh, written review too, that for those that know how all that stuff works, it really helps the algorithm out and helps push our podcast forward. So take the time to do that. That's really beneficial to us. And obviously share this podcast with your friends and family, if you think it'll help them. And if you don't think it'll help them, then just share it on your social media anyway, because <laughs> it helps me and Tracy. <laughs> it does. It does. The, uh, my mind just went blank. Craig. I'm okay with leaving this kind of stuff in there. man. <laughs> I really am. I think it's just real. <laughs> well, I was listening to you talk there and my mind just went blank. Anyway, well, we'll close this out. Come on. Join in. Let's learn together. Oh, man. Come on. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Appreciate you jumping in. That wraps up another fantastic episode of the Nature Blinds podcast. I hope today's journey has inspired you to explore and connect with the natural world in new and exciting ways. Before I say goodbye, remember to check out the Nature Blinds School online membership. If today's episode sparked your interest in wilderness skills and outdoor adventures, this online community is the perfect place for you to start or continue your journey. You can currently sign up for a year for only $99 and get two months for free. Click the link below to discover a world of expert-led courses, engaging content, and a vibrant community eager to share their knowledge and experiences. Whether you're starting your outdoor journey or looking to deepen your existing skills, the Nature Reliance School online membership is here to guide you. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe for more adventures and share this podcast with your fellow nature enthusiasts. Until next time, come on, join in. Let's learn together.